everyone. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Matty Towers, and I get to be the lead pastor here at Epiphany Station. And like Millie said, we're in week four, the final week of our teaching series on the theology of love. Uh, before we jump right into that, though, there's something I want to let you know about what we have been learning about who we are here at Epiphany Station. If you've been here for any kind of length of season, you might have noticed that things seem to change here a lot. Like in our 12 years of existence, nothing really seems to be going the same six months after six months. And so what we want to communicate to you is that we've heard from you that when changes are happening, you'd like to know about them more and why they're happening and where they're coming from. And so we're going to do better at communicating as we continue to grow. We grow because people continue to want to come and, and follow Jesus here, and so that's a fantastic reason for it, but that shouldn't be a reason why you don't know what we're doing and why. And so I want to point you one of the major avenues that we send most of our information down to make sure people know what we're doing and why. That's called our stationery. Our stationery is our monthly update. It's in hard copy on the welcome station, and it's digitally sent out at the beginning of every month, usually around between the second and the fifth. It's going to go out tomorrow, and if you want to get the stationery every month, you can sign up on our website and let us know that you want it, or you can drop a connection card in today, and you can actually let us know you want that and give us an email address, and we'll send it out to you. The biggest thing that you're going to see in the March stationery is what I want to talk to you about right now because we want to communicate better. The biggest thing you're going to notice about the change at Epiphany over the next month is something we're going to change about our worship experiences on a Sunday morning. We've noticed that we could do better in a way to be able to help people focus on the elements of worshiping God together, of musical worship and of opening God's word together in teaching. And so what we're going to do, and we tried this a couple of times in February with great results, we're going to do it again in March, and we're going to move all of the musical worship to the beginning of the worship experience. It's going to be there so that we can come in and spend more time shifting our mindset from distracted to fully worshipful. And then we'll use the back half of the experience for the message, for response, for our prayer team, and for people to connect with each other. We don't do this just because we want to do it. We do it because we think it's a great step for our church family when we think about loving God and loving people. And so with all change, it can be difficult. It can feel weird. And we would love you to continue to receive your input. Uh, but give us grace as we kind of try this out in March and kind of get a feel for how this can better help us focus on loving God and loving people. Now, we are in week four, final week of our teaching series, The Theology of Love. Now, theology being the study of God and love being this thing that I think we spend our entire lives trying to understand, we've been exploring where these two things meet and how they are connected. Through the last three weeks of the series, we've seen how they're not just connected, but really they're tethered. They're inextricably linked from one another because God comes to us with love and love comes at us from God. We've had this core text, this chunk of the Bible that through a series we try and understand and get to grips with, and our core text through this series has been a letter, a piece of a letter, written by a follower of Jesus, a guy called John. John wrote this letter to the church to help them try and understand what it means to love God and love people. This is what John said. He said, dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. But anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. If we're going to say that we're shooting to love God and to love people, then what John says is we actually have to love people. 
We actually have to do that. And so here becomes the crux of the problem and the issue is no one is ever against loving people. That's like a general thing. It doesn't matter what even your religious beliefs are. Loving people on a macro or micro scale, sure, that's good. But how? How are we supposed to actually love people? Outside of the traditional senses that make it easy on us, how do I, as an adult, love my parents well? How do I love my in-laws How do I love my brother who is all of a sudden super political? How do I love my kids when on a Saturday night they are throwing toys at me saying, I'll never play with you again and I hate you? Someone else's kids, I'm sure. But how do I love my neighbor that frustrates me? How do I love my coworker that annoys me? How do I love my boss who is unscrupulous? How do I love my lazy employee? How does a person love an unfaithful spouse? How do we love family who've left us? And how do we love strangers? These are the things that get to us. These are the difficult questions. And so this morning, here's the goal. Here's what I want you to leave with. I want you to leave what I believe to be the best example and the best description of what it actually means to love a person. And so when you leave here today, if you say you're going to love another human being, whoever it may be, I want you to come back to this one example because it should impact every single relationship you ever have from this day forth. And I'm going to warn you, the example in of itself is a little bit weird. So give it some time and let me wrap it up in some context. Because what we see in this example is a specific moment in time when Jesus, the guy who said love God and love people, says, this is how I want you to love people. It was towards the end of his life, him and his uh, followers were all gathered together And this is what he did. Jesus knew that the Father had given him all authority over everything and that he had come from God and would return to God. And so because of that, so he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist. He poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet and then dried them with the towel he had around them. Now, Don't get me wrong, if someone came into my house and started washing feet, I wouldn't necessarily think that's the greatest expression of love. I'd be thinking, get out of my house. So how do we understand this thing that Jesus did and what he was trying to communicate? Because most of what Jesus did was provocative. In his ministry, he was very audacious, and he wanted to mess with with current thought patterns. And this, this action, messed with everyone on the table. It starts off talking about how Jesus affirms and knows who he is, what authority, what rights he's got, where he comes from, and where he's going. And that's essential, essential to him being able to wash feet. Now, washing feet wasn't too different a thing back in the day. It was normal, because back then, it was sandals that were the fashion item of the day, and you would walk down dusty streets that animals walk down too. And the thing about animals is you can't always tell them to hold it. And so when animals walk down a street, they don't just walk down the street. They do other things down the street. And so you'd be walking down said street. So what would happen is you would have your feet washed, and usually it was done by servants. It wasn't something done out of love. It was servitude. But here you have this example, and I want you to try and picture it. Imagine someone you know walking through long, luscious grass wearing Crocs. And it's a place where recently like a septic line has burst. We're talking about that level of kind of filth. And it's disgusting in many ways, not only because they've got fecal matter on their feet, but that person you know also wears Crocs. So it's doubly bad. But Jesus, in this moment where most people would expect a servant to do the washing of the feet, 
He says, knowing where he comes from, knowing where he's going, knowing all authority that he has, I want to wash your feet. A guy immediately stands up, one of his closest, and demands that he doesn't. Demands that he doesn't demean himself in this way. In fact, what happens is, this is one of Jesus' last acts as a free man on this earth. And he does all of this washing of feet because he knows who he is. He knows his value, he knows his worth, and he knows his identity. And he's setting the tone at that table for anyone who would ever call themselves a Jesus follower. He's setting the tone for what it will actually mean to follow Jesus. Now, fast forward 2,000 years, different table, my kitchen table, and a different tone being set a couple of months ago. Now, one of the things that you need to know about my family is that we have three kids. They're eight, six, and four. And someone told them from day one that they should be morning people. Jackie and I are not morning people. And so we decided as soon as they could, we would teach them all how to get their own breakfast because we're lazy, but we're also smart. And so we would always get bowls out and spoons and cereal boxes, and they were just ready for them to go. And the whole plan was this week could have a little bit of a lay-in. They'd be good to go. So it was one family day, which is definitely a day when we don't need to be up early. And instead of letting us sleep in, my two daughters thought that they would serenade us with the sound of a screaming match down from the table in which uh, Jackie swiftly gave me the elbow. I mean, no, I chose to get out and serve Jackie by dealing with the issue on my own. And I come down, wipe the sleep out of my eyes, and they're screaming about something. I'm like, okay, what's the problem? And here was the problem. The youngest, the four-year-old, she wanted to stack all the boxes. I don't know if you've ever done this. It's really fun. All the boxes, like a wall in front of you, like a barricade against the world. She loved that. But the six-year-old, what she wanted to do was punch every single one and knock them over every time she laid them up. So obviously, conflicting desires. And so I say, girls, okay, do you know why you're arguing this morning? I'm thinking, good teaching moment. And while she's doing this, and she's like, no, 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 what you're doing is you're thinking of what you want and not thinking about the other person. Do you know the name for that? I'm like, no, I'm like, it's called selfish. Are we selfish people? I'm like, no, what are we? And the four-year-old's like, we're Tauses. I'm like, yeah, well, we'll get to that in a second. Let's focus on the positives first. And I said, no, 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 we're selfless. And they've heard this word before, so the six-year-old, I said, what's selfless mean? She said, focus on the interests of other people before yourself. I'm like, good. She's getting the attitude into it. This is good. I was like, okay, so we don't put what we want first. We put what other people want first. I'm like, yeah, dad, yeah, dad, okay, dad, okay. So I'm going back up to comfy warm bed. I get three steps up. I hear the box go up. I hear it get punched over, and the screaming match starts all over again. Of, no, but I want to do this, and then I want to do that. And I'm like, okay. Accepting the fact that most parenting efforts are a roll of the dice, and you can't always roll sixes, this was an epic failure. They missed it. But it taught me something very important, and I think it teaches us all something about who we are. Kids display it more than we do. We tend to hide it. It's a bit more subtle. But usually in the very core of who we are, we want this to be about us. The depths of who we want to make this world about is simply me. And we can often want what we want to the detriment of others, to the pain of others, and to the suffering of others. And so Jesus knows this about me. He knows this about us. And so towards the end of his life, he seeks to accentuate and punctuate how we're going to be different if we say we're going to follow him. This is why we get the washing of feet. Because immediately after he's done washing the feet, he goes into the explanation of it all. In verse 12, it says, after washing their feet, he put on his robe again, he sat down and he asked 
Do you understand what I was doing? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. I tell you the truth. Slaves are not greater than their master, and someone who brings a message is not more important than the one who sends the message. Now you know these things. God will bless you for doing them. dozen people around the table have just had their feet quietly washed by Jesus Christ and he's quietly sat down and he's quietly asked the question, do you understand what I was doing? Because if you can understand what I just did, you have the answer of how to love people. He says, if you think that I am your Lord and I am your teacher and I can do that for people, what can't you do? If I am who you think I am, who I say I am, the Son of God, if that's true, now you get to do this. You get to go into people's lives and serve them in a humble way that is completely countercultural. In all of that, towards the end, he actually gives an amazing excuse for you, though, if you need one. He gives an amazing caveat to a reason you could hold on to that excludes you and excuses you from ever having to sacrificially love anyone, ever. And this is it. He says, if you're better than me, if you're better than Jesus, you don't need to worry about this. If you are higher than the master, if you are higher than the one sending the message, then you don't need to. If you deserve more honor and rights than Jesus Christ, don't worry about it. But if at all you believe that Jesus is the highest and you are somewhere underneath, then you are now challenged and called to do exactly what he did, to follow what he laid out. And what he laid out was one of the lowest forms of servitude in his entire society, literally washing the filth off people's feet. And he says, if you are going to love a person, you need to do that. You need to be ready to do that, to be willing to do that, because that is actually how you show someone that you value them, that they are worthwhile, not just to you, but also to him. There's no better way of doing love. There's no more courageous way. There's no more beautiful way. There's no more manly way. There's no more womanly way. He cemented it in the minds of all people that would listen that the way to love people is sacrifice. When he said that there is no greater love than to lay down your life for your friends. Love is sacrificial. Love is learning to live a lifestyle of living for other people. Not just saying heroically, oh, I will throw myself in a bus for my kids, out in front of my bus, or I will die heroically for you. No, it's choosing to live daily for those people that you say you love. We've seen this from message one all the way through now in this Theology of Love series. That to do that is hard. It asks a lot. It asks, in fact, everything of you, everything you've got. And we will only ever do that when we understand why. Why we love God and why we love people. Because those are the things that give us our identity and our value and our worth. Those are the things that remind us where we're coming from and where we're going. And then, if I know my value and worth, and I know what God thinks of you, and I know what he thinks of other people, then what Jesus is saying is now you get to spend your days showing them that. 
You get to spend your days taking everything you know about my love for you and telling them about my love for them. That's actually what it means to love God and to love people, period. And so for you and I as individuals, it can become very narrow and it can become very distinct of the ways in which we are called to love and who to love. And so this is the first question. Who do you need to love? Who do you need to love? And if you know there's a name that pops immediately in the back of your head and you're squishing that one down because it's definitely not that one, it's definitely that one. Because love is not just about those people who are easy to love or love you in return or you'll get something from it. Love costs and it asks and it's difficult and it's grit and it's blood and it's sweat. And so maybe for you, who God needs you to love is the spouse that you've shut down to. Maybe it's loving the husband you've gone cold to, the wife that you've distanced yourself from. Maybe it's loving your kid that you don't quite get along with. Or maybe it's loving the kid whose decisions you don't agree with. Maybe it's loving that parent that let you down. Or that boss that seems to overlook you and take advantage of your work ethic over and over again. Maybe it's actually loving the church that screwed up and got it wrong. Maybe it's loving the teacher that runs you a little bit hard at school. Or maybe it's loving that friend that's quite frankly, not that good a friend. Now, no one's professing that we should go out there and be doormats to the world, to be abused and neglected and trod on. That's not it. But I think when we talk about loving people, we can quickly say that we don't have enough. We don't have enough mercy. We don't have enough grace. We don't have enough forgiveness. And we just say we can't love those people. You can't love those people if you're more important than Jesus. So maybe it's a person, maybe it's a wider group, maybe God's wanting to challenge you on the idea that you've got your nice little inner circle. You've got your nice little clique of people where love is reflected back and forth in its Brady Bunch style. Maybe he wants you to see that there are people outside of that circle who don't have a circle. People who don't have friends, they don't have family, they don't have loved ones, and you're in a position to serve them humbly, to love them well. So if you get your who, like you get this idea of a person's name or a people or a place, it comes back to it though, how are you going to love them? How are you going to love that person? How do they need to be loved? Because often when we think about love, we think about how I want to love them, how I would do it, not what they need. What people need, I believe, more than ever is for us to choose to sacrifice our rights, to put on hold our position and our reputation and every privilege we might have ever had and use these things to love other people and show them that they're worth every good thing we've ever received. They're worth loving them. It might be that we have subconsciously, unconsciously put up barriers between us and people where they are for sure certain you're not gonna love them ever. Maybe you need to take those barriers down a notch with a little bit of humility Maybe you're the one that's actually done a little bit of the hurting and you need to go and apologize. These are the scrubbing of feet. When we choose to do the difficult thing that other people won't do, that's how we love like Jesus. And so if you have a person, a name, a thought, and you want to love people better, this is why we do church. Church actually exists as a community of people to help the community of people love God and love people. It's what we're in together. So it's why we do things like Celebrate Recovery. It's why we have connection groups, small groups, so we can do that together because it's hard. It's really hard to do. But if you're in that place where you want to love people better and you don't know what to do about it, 
That's also why our leadership team exists. And so if you find you're in that place and you need some guidance or advice of what you could do next with a parent, with a spouse, with a kid, with a friend, with a boss, we would love to help. When you walked in this morning, you were handed a program and your program is connected to it and perforated is the connection card that you can tear off. And on that connection card, you can jot down and throw down as much or as little information as you wish, but a contact detail is helpful to follow up with. And tell us what you're thinking, who you're thinking of. Maybe it's simply asking us to pray for you as you go about loving these people. Or maybe you actually want legitimate strategic guidance of what you could do to keep yourself safe in the interaction and what would be wise and what would be most loving. We would love to help. Because it is not normal. It does not come by as natural. It doesn't come to us naturally to love people this way. But if we're going to love, then we need to love like Jesus. And loving like Jesus looks like sacrifice. Taking a piece of yourself and letting it be shed for someone. It costs. As we wrap up the series, I want to take you back to the very beginning of the series, which is not four weeks ago. It's months ago when we talk about why we wanted to do this as a leadership team. We talked about if we could, if we could explain what God has been trying to say about love from the very beginning, and we only took one thing away with us from the entire teaching series, what would it be? I shared what I thought with John Dent, who's our guy who does production of all our graphics. I said, I want us to remember when we talk about love that it costs something. And so we came up with this graphic for the theology of love that shows the dropping of blood, because that's what love is. Love costs, love hurts, love asks something of us. And we remember when we think about love, we remember the dropping of blood because that's the greatest declaration and expression of love that's ever been put on record through all mankind's history. And God wants us to remember it so we remember how to love people. The last thing we're going to do today together is we're going to take communion. And communion is just that. It's remembering a sacrifice. That's why we take it. To remember a sacrifice that was put on display to show people how much they're worth and valued, how much they're loved. It is to remember that God sent Jesus Christ to pay a blood penalty, a death penalty, for all the sins we've ever committed. That we could be freed from them if we would believe in Jesus' death for us. So God chose to deal with the problem Not with hate, not with anger, not with retribution, but with love, with sacrifice. And right before Jesus' sacrifice, the same time he's washing these guys' feet, he gives out the first communion. In Luke 22, it says that he took bread, gave thanks to God for it, and broke it into pieces. He gave it to the disciples, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this to remember me. Then after supper, he took another cup of wine and said, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. That's what love is. That's God's greatest declaration and expression of love to you. And so we want to take communion together today to remember that as we speak about loving God and loving people. And so if you're in that place where you trust Jesus for your rescue, it's a sacrifice for you to remove the debt of your sin, then we want you to take communion with us. The way to take it here at Epiphany is really simple. We have the music team leaders in a song of worship. And as they do, we have communion on the corners of the stage. There's bread and then there's gluten-free bread option. And then there's non-alcoholic juice. And as they lead us, you can come up the center aisles and head to the corners of the stage, grab it, 
and head back down the outside aisles and take your seat. We're going to have a center section go first so we can ease off the traffic flow. But you take that bread and that juice and you remember what it represents and why it was given. We remember that God loved you so much that he sent his son to pay every penalty you would ever have to pay for the sin you've committed. That's love. That's the very theology of love. That's what instills in us the ability to love people. Let me pray for you guys. Father God, we thank you that this morning we get to talk about your love. We get to talk about the fact that there's any love to be had. So help us not to ignore this conversation. Help us not to ignore any work that you're doing right now into communicating to us our value, worth, and identity through Jesus. Help us to see the sacrifices of your son as what we get to rest in to know who we are. God, help us then to go and take that as our ability and our inspiration and our motivation and our power to love people. So help us to take this communion in a way in which we can just sit in it, we can have a conversation with you, and it can leave us changed from this day out. Help us to be different. Help us to love you and to love people. In Jesus' name, amen.